1: The always tense mood between the U.S. and Iran has appeared to lift, at least slightly, since the two nations announced the details of a painstakingly negotiated deal. Iran and the U.S. will both release prisoners, and the U.S. will unfreeze some Iranian oil profits.
2: Washington reportedly agreed on a partial transfer of the Iranian funds locked in South Korean banks under U.S. sanctions via Switzerland. According to a senior official at South Korea's foreign ministry, the U.S. has in effect accepted the plan, though discussions still remain on the exact method of transfer.
1: The question is, why is this happening? And why now? Bloomberg's Courtney McBride has been reporting on this story. And whether it's a one-off arrangement or if it hints at a broader diplomatic effort behind the scenes.
3: The administration emphasizes that this is a separate issue from any kind of nuclear negotiations, but they are somewhat linked.
1: And later, I speak with Iran expert Ali Vaez of the International Crisis Group.
4: In general, this is a very fragile process. But if it is completed and concluded successfully, I think it is likely to become a gateway for more dialogue. I'm Wes
1: Kosova. Today on The Big Take, what Tehran and Washington hope to get from this agreement. Courtney, nice to have you back. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you were willing to do this because... I have a million questions about this story, even by State Department standards. They don't really like to divulge a lot. They seem to be really cagey about describing what is going on with this deal. So what do we know?
3: Absolutely. I think both the State Department and the White House are being very cautious. There have been situations previously where They thought they had gotten to the finish line and everything collapsed. And so, particularly because you have several American citizens who've been detained for a very long time in Iran, they just don't want to say the wrong thing and upset the apple cart, if you will. Last week, four American citizens were moved from prison to house arrest. A fifth was already on house arrest. And the plan is for those five ultimately to come home to the United States. In concert with these releases, South Korea is going to release $6 billion of Iranian oil profits that have been frozen since 2019. That money will be transferred to an account that the Iranians can access to buy humanitarian and other goods that are not subject to U.S. sanctions. Once that money is in hand, Iran will allow the Americans to return home. That is expected to happen in September. In a move that the U.S. government is claiming is not linked, is not part of a swap, some Iranians held in the United States are going to be released from prison.
1: Courtney, who are the Americans who've been held in prison?
3: Three of them have been publicly identified and and are pretty well known, Um, but two others have requested that their names remain private at the moment. So the administration is not releasing their names, even though there has been some reporting about them. The Iranian government has a, a fairly long history of seizing dual nationals, um, Iranian-Americans, and charging them with spurious espionage crimes. So some of the Americans who are in custody now and are have been moved to house arrest have been held by Iran for as long as eight years.
1: So those are the Americans. Who are the Iranians the U.S. is holding?
3: This is another complication or mystery As part of this arrangement is that the Americans haven't indicated which Iranians the Iranian government is interested in getting back. And why is this happening now? The big impetus appears to be the movement of the money. The U.S. has tried through successive administrations to get these people home. The administration emphasizes that this is a separate issue from any kind of nuclear negotiations. But they are somewhat linked. They are, you know, those talks are happening in parallel, indirectly, as the U.S. and Iran do not have diplomatic relations. The movement of the money, which South Korea is transferring to accounts in Qatar that the Iranians can access, is really the piece that allows the Americans to move out of prison and eventually home. And why is South Korea involved? South Korea purchased oil from Iran using waivers from U.S. sanctions— And under the the U.S. law, that money had to be held in accounts um, that Iran could use only to purchase certain types of goods. And now that money is finally moving.
1: Now, the U.S., as you said, is saying that this money can only be used for certain purposes. But Iran came out publicly and said, nope, they're free to use the money for anything they want.
3: Iran may try to spend the funds in other ways, but not only Iran, but any Companies or, or banking institutions that would do business with them are subject to sanctions, uh, and so I think any of their counterparts might be reticent to do any of those transactions for fear of running afoul of U.S. sanctions. Absolutely.
1: What has the U.S. said about the reasons they're doing this?
3: The Biden administration and, and the Trump administration before it have really emphasized the need to bring home Americans who are wrongly detained abroad. That is the primary and in some ways the only reason that they have stated for trying to bring these folks home.
1: So Iran obviously wanted to get this money unlocked. The U.S. wanted to get these prisoners released. But is there something more going on here? Is this a thaw in U.S.-Iranian relations for a particular purpose?
3: I wouldn't go so far as to call it a thaw, but there is a sense that the nuclear issue, which has loomed over the relationship for some time, is a component of this deal. You know, while the U.S. in particular is careful to say that the issues are, are separate, the Iranians have said that this opens the door for wider negotiations. You know, the U.S. had tried for, for some time throughout the Biden administration to get Iran to return to compliance with the 2015 international nuclear agreement from which the Trump administration withdrew in 2018. Those talks ultimately went nowhere, despite a lot of intervention by even the European Union foreign policy chief. But there is some hope, it seems, on both sides, um, and the Iranians have said this publicly, that should this prisoner agreement and the release of the Iranian funds from South Korea proceed as planned, that this could open the door to some sort of negotiation on the nuclear issue.
1: And what is the status of Iran's nuclear program?
3: It is somewhat opaque, um, in part because Iran has uh, not complied with the International Atomic Energy Agency's monitoring efforts. And so, you know, one of the criticisms of the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the deal is that it somewhat blinded the international community to the status of the Iranian program. Because uh, when
1: the deal was underway, Iran had to let inspectors in and they were able to see what they were doing or not doing.
3: Correct. Not only were there inspection requirements, but then Iran was somewhat constrained in what it could do in terms of enriching the uranium that it would use for what it called peaceful nuclear purposes and what the international community regarded as a weapons program.
1: Because Iran still insists that they have no intention of building a nuclear weapon. That's correct. But the evidence would strongly suggest otherwise. It would.
3: There have been reports that Iran has continued to enrich uranium to a level that would bring it closer to achieving a nuclear weapon. Though more recently, there's speculation that Iran has actually pulled back, perhaps in anticipation of making a deal with the United States or other Western countries.
1: You said earlier that Iran indicated that it would want to return to the nuclear deal. Do you think they're open to that?
3: Yes, the Iranian foreign ministry spokesman said that this could pave the way for a nuclear agreement. There are no specifics on, on what that could entail. And I think that any sort of agreement which would involve concessions on either side is politically unpalatable or at least challenging in both countries. And
1: why would Iran be so eager to return to that deal?
3: The 2015 deal at least opened the possibility of greater integration into the international economy and uh, removing some, some U.S. and international sanctions that had been crippling to the Iranian economy. The Trump administration's withdrawal and the the maximum pressure campaign that followed really harmed the Iranian economy. That $6 billion in funds that stand to be released from South Korea are really critical right now after months of economic challenge and internal turmoil in Iran.
1: Much as Iran might like to return to this deal that the U.S. pulled out of under President Trump, there's a lot of resistance to that in Washington do you think it's at all plausible that the US and Iran could return to the table
3: that would be a hugely challenging for the administration there's opposition on both sides of the aisle in congress the conventional wisdom seems to be that right now a, a status quo with reduced or low-level Iranian enrichment and minimal malign activity within the region by Iran and its proxies in other countries is the best that the administration can hope for until after the 2024 elections. The phrase we hear a lot in our reporting is, kick the can down the road, that the administration is really just hoping to buy time. And then perhaps in 2025, should President Biden be reelected, it could attempt a a more robust uh, long-term deal with Iran.
1: What's been the response in Washington to the announcement of the release of these US prisoners and the money transfer?
3: There's been a lot of criticism of the administration for making what some would term an end run around Congress. The idea that any sort of negotiation really needs congressional approval, even though this is not a treaty or anything that would require the advice and consent of the Senate, for instance. That being said, I think even those who would criticize the administration for the way it has proceeded here are, of course, publicly Glad to see that American citizens are are being released from a, a notorious prison in Iran. Because the administration hasn't explained exactly what's happened or what the planned sequence of events is and the fact that the money is actually Iran's in the first place, its critics are able to say that the U.S. is paying off Iran, that, you know, that Iran is getting $6 billion in ransom payments.
1: Where do you think this goes from here, Courtney? The
3: administration is not going to speak publicly about this. The word from them has been that after the Americans are safely on U.S. soil, or at least out of Iran, we should not expect much information. The focus really seems to be getting to that step where the American citizens are, are safely out of Iran. And at that point, they will explain a little bit more of how things fell into place.
1: And maybe how this could be part of something larger?
3: Potentially, yes. All of those conversations seem to be happening quietly, but one of the real challenges in the nuclear negotiations has been that Iran and the United States do not speak directly. There are always intermediaries. You know, as anyone who's played a game of telephone knows, that can complicate messaging and communication.
1: Courtney, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
3: Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
1: After the break, how Iran's leaders view this agreement.
2: Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com.
1: Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Obviously a lot going on here, and as Courtney says, the U.S. has been pretty tight-lipped about the details. The Iranians, though, have been a bit more talkative. So let's take a closer look at why Iran's leaders were eager for this deal to come together and what else they may hope will come of it. To do that, I asked Ali Vaez to come back on the show. He's the director of the Iran Project at the International Crisis Group, the think tank, here in Washington. Ali, thanks for coming back. It's good to
4: see you again. Great pleasure.
1: So the last time we spoke, it was about the internal turmoil within Iran with the protests. And now we have something entirely different. This agreement between the US and Iran, you don't see that very often. Can you help explain just exactly what's happening here?
4: I think the two are connected in the sense that as of last October, about a month after the protests started. I think the U.S. intelligence community came to the conclusion that the protests do not pose an existential threat to the regime. Bill Burns, the head of CIA, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, they both came out and publicly shared this assessment with members of Congress. So if you're the Biden administration and you come to the conclusion that the regime is here to stay you have to deal with some matters of priority. And the fate of American hostages in Iran, of course, is one of the key issues, as is some of Iran's most problematic activities, including its nuclear program. And according to reports, that's when direct contacts were established between U.S. envoy for Iran and Iran's ambassador at the United Nations. And apparently that led as of this spring to proximity talks in Oman about how to de-escalate tensions between the two countries. And take into account that if the two sides were hesitating about whether this is necessary or not, in March they came very close to finalizing a detainee deal. Then there was a military confrontation between Iran and the U.S. and Syria that resulted in the first American fatality under President Biden's tenure. And that resulted in the talks being derailed, the detainee negotiations being derailed for several weeks. And that shows to you how the two key priorities for the U.S. administration, the American hostages and regional developments or Iran's nuclear program, are interlinked, even though the administration would like to tackle them separately, but the linkage is undeniable.
1: What specifically does the U.S. hope to come out of this? And what does Iran want to
4: come out of this? Look, I think both sides do not want a conflict for different reasons. I think the U.S. primarily for political reasons, because Biden administration's number one priority is the president's reelection in the coming year and a half. Uh, And second, they're dealing with a major crisis in Ukraine that absorbs almost all the oxygen in the room. But they also have other concerns including tensions with China over Taiwan. The last thing they want is a nuclear crisis in the Middle East that could result in a military confrontation in an election year. And I think the Iranians, too, do not want a conflict, but mostly for economic and security reasons. Iran is now coming out of months of turmoil, and Iran has parliamentary elections in March of 2024, and it's really struggling economically, although... They have survived under sanctions, but that doesn't mean they're they're thriving. In fact, they're experiencing the highest inflation rate uh, historically in Iran. The currency has been devalued, and so they need a degree of calm and stability. And I think that's why interests of both sides have aligned to move towards not a deal necessarily that would be a would amount to a major diplomatic breakthrough, restore the 2015 nuclear deal, but a an understanding that would at least keep the status quo between now and November 2024 until they both know who the next U.S. president is going to be.
1: There are always so many layers to this. In this case, we have the unusual appearance of South Korea as being central to this deal. We don't often think of South Korea as being a big part of U.S.-Iran relations.
4: Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of countries caught in between, but the South Koreans, I think, shouldered this burden in a very unfair way. It's very rare for the supreme leader of Iran in a public speech to single out an international firm. Uh, He did so by singling out Samsung and basically saying that, because South Korean companies had withdrawn from Iran, not because of international sanctions, but because of u- unilateral US sanctions, that they should never be allowed back into the country. South Korea had significant exports of electronics to Iran, and all of that market has been lost to China now. But South Korea also could not repatriate about six, $7 billion of Iranian oil receipts that it accrued when it was allowed to import Iranian oil until President Trump withdrew from the 2015 nuclear deal and reimposed sanctions. Basically, under U.S. law, it was allowed for Iran to use this money for humanitarian trade all along because U.S. sanctions exempt food and medicine and medical equipment. But South Korean banks were so spooked by U.S. sanctions that they were overcomplying with these regulations. And as a result, South Korea had become under tremendous amount of political pressure from the Iranians.
1: Do you think that South Korea was bringing any sort of pressure to bear on the U.S. to free them from what you call this burden?
4: Yeah, I think South Koreans had engaged both sides in explaining to them that this is definitely, that they don't want to be between a rock and a hard place. This is not the kind of assets that they would like to be in possession of. But at the end of the day, they had limited leverage here because South Korean banks absolutely refused to move this money without explicit green light from the Treasury Department that they are able to do so.
1: After the break, could this deal be the start of a new phase in the U.S.-Iran relationship? Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
1: You had said that, especially in an election year, any deal with Iran becomes a political football. What has the reaction been so far that you can see in the U.S. and also overseas to this agreement?
4: Well, in the U.S., as anticipated uh, it has become a political football. The administration has not come out in full strength to defend this agreement because let's remember that the hostages are still in Iran. They've not left the country. And any kind of detail that could potentially backfire on them would be disastrous for the administration. But the critics are in full swing in basically calling this a ransom deal and criticizing the Biden administration for funding basically all the destabilizing activities that Iran is involved in. Again, take into account that it took about six months for the Treasury Department to negotiate a tightly controlled oversight mechanism of a banking channel that would not give Iran access to the funds but it would allow Iran to submit orders through a bank in Doha, in Qatar, for food and medicine. The Trump administration itself established a very similar mechanism in Switzerland, because they too had realized that as a result of the chilling effect of sanctions, Iran was unable to buy food and medicine. And especially during COVID, this was a major problem. And so I really think the criticism is... Much more of a partisan exercise in as we get closer to the to the elections than a a real one, because I don't think the Biden administration has done anything that is that different than what the Trump administration put in place. In Iran, too, there is a degree of of debate, but it's not at the same level because. The hardliners are now in complete control. But nevertheless, there has been criticism against the government of Ibrahim Raisi, who negotiated this deal, that they have basically accepted the deal that amounts to oil for food. But again, that too, I think, is not a, a fair assessment because of the fact that Iran should have been able to do this all along anyways.
1: Ali, do you see this deal as perhaps being the beginning of a softening of tensions between the U.S. and Iran that possibly leads somewhere, possibly even toward coming back to the table to talk about a return to the Iran nuclear deal?
4: If it's fully implemented, it could turn into a confidence-building exercise. But as I said, between now and the time that the hostages are back home, we're talking about a few weeks that the families are uh, extremely anxious about
1: between now and then, still things could go wrong?
4: Oh, absolutely, because there is just so much friction between Iran and the United States, and there are so many actors involved, respective allies in the region, whether it's non-state actors, Shia militias backed by Iran, uh, or Israel, that although we've seen a degree of de-escalation between uh, Gulf Arab states and Iran as well, but There is still plenty of space for miscalculation, for freelancing, uh, for mistakes and misunderstandings. In general, this is a very fragile process. But if it is completed and concluded successfully, I think it is likely to become a gateway for more dialogue. Not about a deal, but about what a future deal could look like once there is political certainty about who the next U.S. president is, because that's the most determining factor here. So in the short run, I think it is possible that we could see a resumption of negotiations at the nuclear level between Iran and the world powers. That includes the United States, which would be quite significant because during the first two and a half years of the Biden administration, Negotiating to revive the 2015 nuclear deal, Iran refused to talk to the U.S. directly. Ali, thank you.
1: Always great to talk
4: to you. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Virgolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zeneb Siddiqui. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another Big Take. Have a great weekend.